We'll invite you now to turn to 922 in your sanctuary Bible. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5a. It's also printed in your bulletin. I want to give a little word of introduction about this text. We have this text today because Matthew's gospel quotes quotes it in chapter 2 of verse 6 of Matthew and gives it as the reason that the wise men went looking for Jesus in the little town of Bethlehem. So this reading from Micah is about Bethlehem, the town. Bethlehem means house of bread. That's what its name means. Beit is house. Lechem is bread. And you put them together, you get Beit Lechem or Bethlehem, the house of bread or the house of food or sometimes the house of meat. That word kind of means something about sustenance. And bread is probably the number one thing that people ate. Bethlehem, just to situate it for you, is not far from Jerusalem. It's five miles from Old Town Jerusalem to Bethlehem. You can walk there in about an hour and a half from one to the other. It's pretty close. It's pretty flat between the two. Mostly flat. You can do it very easily. Now, there's about 30,000 people living in Bethlehem. So it's a fairly small city or large town, depending on how you want to call it. But in the time of Jesus and before, it was a very small town. Maybe only a few hundreds of people were living there. And so, as you can imagine, there weren't a lot of built-up buildings. There were no skyscrapers or anything like that. It was just a small town. In fact, it really, it wasn't that important of a town. It was not on the way to anything important. There were two major roads that sort of went through that region. They connected Egypt, which was a huge center of culture and commerce with Mesopotamia, which, as we know, is where the, the Babylonians and the Assyrians were. It's where modern-day Iraq is. To connect those two empires or places were two roads. One was called the Via Maris, which was, it was the road that went along the Mediterranean Sea. It was the, the way of the sea or the way of the ocean. And the other one was called the King's Highway, and it went up the Jordan Valley from where the Red Sea reaches up into the southern part of Israel now. And Bethlehem is on top of a mountain range that lies between these two roads. And there would be no reason to go from one road to the other through, through Bethlehem. It was not the most convenient way to even get between those two places. And if you lived in Jerusalem and you wanted to go anywhere significant, you would probably go down past Jericho and onto the King's Highway, and then you would go north or south, up to Galilee or south to someplace else. Or if you wanted to go to the coast, you would go straight down to the coast, and you would take the Via Maris somewhere else. All that to say is that you really, you would have no reason to go to Bethlehem unless you had a relative there, or you had some business there, or you wanted to get to a relatively small area around it, the hill country uh, in the mountains there. But basically... Nobody went to Bethlehem for any, any good reason at all, really. Uh, but, as we read in Matthew's Gospel, three wise men go to Bethlehem because they're led there by a star. And they're also led there by the, the chief priests and scholars when they consult with King Herod. And they say, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And they remember this passage. Those chief priests and scholars remember this passage from Micah chapter 5, verse 2 about how the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. Now, in our reading today, you'll, you're going to hear a strange word paired with the name Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is like a tongue twister. You can't say it if you just ate a saltine cracker. It would not work. Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
Well, luckily I haven't just eaten a saltine cracker, so I can say it, and you can try it too. Ephratha, you want to give it a try? Ephratha, yep, Bethlehem Ephratha. And Ephratha is actually another name for Bethlehem in other parts of the Bible. And this passage is actually one of those places in the Bible that links the two names together, Bethlehem and Ephratha. And as we're going to see, it probably links those two names together for a purpose. We're going to see what that purpose is a little bit later. But Bethlehem, as I said, means house of bread. Ephrath, or Ephratha, means fertile or fruitful. So perhaps that region had a good yield of olives or something like that, and so it was named that way. There is mention of this place by name as Ephratha in Genesis, where it talks about Rachel. Do you remember who Rachel was? She was Jacob's first love. Not his first wife, because he was tricked into marrying her sister Leah. But Rachel was Jacob's first love. But she was the last of all of his wives. He had four wives. She was the last of all of his wives to bear him any children. And that's because Rachel suffered with infertility for a very, very long time before the Lord finally gave her uh, the ability to have children. And her first son was Joseph, and we know who he is. And her second son was Benjamin. Benjamin was born to her in Bethlehem. And the labor was so hard for her that she died giving birth to Benjamin. And she's buried there now in Bethlehem. In fact, you can go to Rachel's tomb. It's in modern Bethlehem in the municipality of Bethlehem. I lived in the Holy Land for six weeks, and it was a half a mile from the place where I was staying. I was staying at a, a sort of an ecumenical theological institute. I could look out the window and see Rachel's tomb, where she was buried after she gave birth to Benjamin and died. So that's a little bit of the history of Bethlehem and what happened there. We also know, though, that Jesse was from Bethlehem, and David was then from Bethlehem, so that was important. We also know that Ruth... And all the goings-on around Ruth took place in the, in the region around Bethlehem. So Bethlehem has some history in the Old Testament. Now I just want to say a quick word about Micah. A real quick word about Micah. He lived in Jerusalem at a time when there was a lot of fear and uncertainty. In fact, there were a lot of Syrian refugees in Jerusalem. Do you believe me? There were Syrian refugees in Jerusalem at the time that Micah was writing this. And the reason for that is because he was writing after the destruction of what we call the Northern Kingdom in 720 B.C. It was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. A lot of people fled the northern, the northern capital uh, of Samaria, and they went down to their cousins in Jerusalem, and they tried to get jobs, and they, they were stood out on the corner market and tried to get work, or they were begging for food. And Micah, in particular, was angry at Jerusalem for the injustice it showed to political refugees. And, and other people who were vulnerable in his society. And so he talked a lot about justice. And he was angry, God, God was angry through him at the injustice of the people of Jerusalem and how they were treating Syrian refugees in, in Jerusalem. And he lived in a time that was between the fall of the Northern Empire and the fall of the Southern Empire where he lived in 587 B.C. You're getting a kind of a lot of history this morning, but I, I think it's interesting and it's related, believe me. So he prophesied that the current king of Judah was going to see a great humiliation, but that in the future, out of Bethlehem, a new king would arise who would set all things right. And that's what our passage is about today. It's a prophecy of hope about what would happen later in time 
And as Christians, and gospel, the Gospel of Matthew helps us here, as Christians, we believe this prophecy in Micah is about Jesus. So let's go to our reading. It's a, it's a prophecy about Bethlehem, a prophecy about the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. Micah 5.2 But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what I'd like to do is go over these four slim verses here from Micah, one by one, and then maybe put some things together for us at the end. So I'd like to have you take out your bulletin, look at verse 2, look at uh, the beginning of it, and here again we see the linkage of these two names, Bethlehem and Ephrath, or Ephrathah. And we'll get a little bit more into that later, but there's again that linkage. And there's this acknowledgement that it's not much, there's not much there there, okay? It's a small town. And what he says is, you really are the small among the clans of Judah. That literally means the thousands of Judah. A large group would be a tribe of many, many thousands. And a smaller subgroup of that tribe was called a thousand or a clan. A smaller grouping, and so and so each clan maybe had its own town, but it's doubtful that Bethlehem even had a thousand people at that time. So it was a small clan. It was a small place, and uh, you know, not much happened there. You wouldn't really go there unless you needed to. But nonetheless, out of this small place will come somebody who's very outsized compared to the place of their birth. And something's going to happen. This person who comes out of this small town is going to rule over all of Israel. And they have an origin deep in the past. Did you catch that? Whose origins are from of old, from ancient times? How can somebody who's new have their origins in ancient times? In fact, this phrase that we have here is similar to the phrase... Uh, or the name of God that we have called the Ancient of Days. It's very similar to that phrase. So there's this sense that the one who's prophesied to come out of Bethlehem will be connected with the God of the past, the God who was there before all things were created, this ancient God who pre-existed all things, which is amazing. How can a person be like that? Well, we'll find out. Although, at the time of the... Uh, Kingship, uh, the time that Micah wrote this, people would refer to 400 years before them, the time of King David, also as the ancient times. 400 years, I guess, is 400 years ago ancient to us? Are the 1600s ancient times? We wouldn't think of it that way, but they had less history to contend with, I think, less recorded history to contend with. So they would look back to the time of David and call those the ancient times. 
And so this is a free choice for you. You can take this home and do whichever you want. You can say, this is a connection to the God who's the ancient of days from time immemorial before all things were created. Or you could say, this person is going to be related to the time of David. And I think the fun option would be to say both. Why not? This could be a connection here that is worth pursuing. That this is both a connection to God and and the ancient God who pre-exists everything and who created the universe and all that's in it. And this particular working out of a person who was a man after God's own heart and in a place that God chose, King David. And so often we see the messianic hope, the hope that we have for Jesus, is that he's connected with King David in this sort of interesting and intimate way. So I'd like, I'm going to say it's a free choice, but I'm going to choose both because I think you can here. It's kind of fun. Let's look at verse 3. Now, this one is challenging. The language is, I think, a little convoluted here in the NIV. Um, But the basic meaning is that God's people have been judged, and in some sense, they've been abandoned by God. Now, God never completely abandons all his people. But we read in the Old Testament that God's presence departs from the temple when he's finally fed up with them. And so there's a sense that God gives them over to their enemies. Whether, it's, whether He doesn't abandon them personally, but he abandons them as a nation, and he withholds his presence from, from them in their worship because he can't coexist with their false worship. So the, the people of God are, in some sense, abandoned because their wickedness is rising before him. And Micah is prophesying here what actually comes to pass. In 587 B.C., The Babylonian Empire, which supplanted the Assyrian Empire, finally comes and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, destroys the walls of the city, kills a lot of people, and the rest who aren't able to get away, they march off into exile in Babylon. And so they experience exile, separation, and all of this is going to be ended, it says, if you look at the second line of verse 3, until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. So Micah is saying that there's going to be this period of separation and exile and distance from God that's going to be brought to a close when a child comes on the scene, born to a woman who's expecting him. Wow. And you could think, well, that could be any child, right? I mean, you go to the maternity ward and children are born every day there. So... Aren't there pregnant women in every society, in every place? Which, you know, which one is it? Well, this is a special child. Not just any woman and not just any child. As we saw, this one who's going to come in Bethlehem is going to be a ruler over Israel. He's going to be connected to God as the Ancient of Days. So this is a special woman and a special child. And verse 4 goes on to tell us that he's going to be, have a special role. He's going to be a shepherd. Do you remember that in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd? Jesus is making his own connection to this, this uh, uh, prophecy from Michael, Micah. Pardon me. So he'll be a shepherd. And as a shepherd, he'll protect his flock with God's strength and in the majesty of God's name, which sounds pretty good to me. And it says his people will live in security. Now, finally, verse 5. And this is actually just the first part of verse 5. It's 5a. It says that he will then be their peace. The people who return after exile, when this child is born, he will shepherd over them and protect them with God's strength and the majesty of God's name, and they will live in security, and that he will be their peace. This is the prophecy. 
Now that word peace, and when you see it in the Old Testament, you probably know that that word is shalom, which we hear today, even today, as the word for peace. But shalom means more than peace. It's not just the cessation of hostilities between two parties. It's not just the lack of conflict uh, in a war or between people. It's actually a total state of being. So it could also mean peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, or tranquility, or all of those things together. So this prophecy is not just about the end of a war or the end of a conflict, but about a whole state of being of God's people focused and centered on the person of this person, on the person, in the person that this uh, passage is prophesying will come into the world being born of a woman from Bethlehem. So we're really beginning to zero in that this must be about Jesus, right? This must be Jesus that we're talking about. And of course, uh, Matthew tells us it is. So it all sounds very good to me. Uh, this is a beautiful passage. It's, it's short. It's great. It points forward to Jesus. But I want to go back to the very first part of our reading. Go ahead and go back to verse 2. To the name that Micah gives this place, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now these two names, as I said, they're paired together here and only two other places in the Bible. They're paired together in Genesis, where it talks about Rachel giving birth to Benjamin and then dying. It says that all took place in Ephrathah. And then a few verses later it says, by the way, Ephrathah is Bethlehem. That's the name that you guys know it by now. Whoever, uh, whoever wrote, uh, the person who wrote Genesis was writing that to his audience. I'm using this name Ephrath. You know it as Bethlehem. It also occurs in Ruth. Ruth talks about Bethlehem and Ephrath, or Ephrathah being the same place. And the only other place in the Old Testament that they're referred to in the same place is here, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So, Bethlehem by itself, without the second name for it, is mentioned far more times in the Bible in far more books than, than just these three places. And so that's the more common way to refer to Bethlehem, is just by its own first name. But I think when Micah does this, he's giving us a breadcrumb, a little trail to follow that God wants to give to us through him to make sense, even more sense of this prophecy and to make sense of the coming of Jesus. And I want to say that Bethlehem and Ephrathah is this place of total contrast. It's a place of total contrast in the Bible. So for one, in one way, it's a house of bread, and it's a place of fertility and fruitfulness. That's what its names mean. But it's the last place, uh, it's the place where the last of Jacob's son was born and his mother Rachel died. So it is both, right? It's both a place of, of death, and a place of life, of new life. It's a small little place on the way to nowhere, yet someone comes from it who rules Israel and all the world. It's not really on the map, but it becomes the most important place on all maps. It's a place where the last things become the first. Jacob's first love bore him his last son in this place. And the least and the last of the clans of Judah turn out to be more important than all the rest, than all the tribes of the rest of Israel. And as I said, it's a place of fertility, but it was also the place of death. And this was a woman who had struggled with fertility for many, 
many years. If you know anyone who struggled with fertility, you might know how challenging that is for them. Only to have her prayers answered when she had Joseph, and then again when she had Benjamin. But she died giving birth to Benjamin. So it's a place of grief, but also a place of life. And I can only imagine what it was like for Benjamin's family. Here's a new child, the last of the children, but no mother. His mother died giving birth to him. Now he had 11 older brothers, which could be a good thing or could be a bad thing. I had an older brother, and it was sometimes a bad thing. (laughs) He would beat me up, you know, and it was fun to beat up your little brother. But they probably also looked out for him. He had one older sister that we know of, Dinah, but probably other older sisters. He had his father. He, his father had three other wives who were kind of like aunts to him, I guess, in a way. So he had a huge extended family. But can you imagine how Jacob would look at Benjamin? Here's my son, my youngest son, my last son, the last son I ever had. But he was also the occasion for the death of my first love. What a poignant child this is. What a conflicted child this must have been for Jacob. The celebration of life, but the reminder of death. Isn't that what we're kind of driving at when we talk about Jesus, too? When God enters the world in birth as Jesus Christ, he's foretelling his own death. New life is only going to come out of death when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to God. And so all of this is really pulling together for what Christmas is really about. It's more conflicted than just Christmas carols and decorations and gifts and a a, a layer of white snow on top of everything that hides every flaw in the landscape. Christmas and Bethlehem are like totally conflicted things if you really get right down to it. This is a place of sadness, but a place of hope. It's a place of grief, but it's a place of new life. It's a place that's small, yet great things come from it. It's a place of disappointment, but it's a place of hope. And it's a place that promises a return from exile. It's really exciting, this place of reconciliation with God. Now, what what could this possibly mean for us? I mean, you may be wondering... What a fascinating story about Bethlehem. I didn't know all that stuff about Bethlehem. And I didn't know all this stuff about Bethlehem until I was in my study this last couple weeks. And I really enjoyed learning this and passing it on to you. But here's what I think. You could take your hand out. Take your right hand out and you could start counting the number of disappointments and griefs that are currently in your life right now or have been in your life. One, two, three, four, Five, and you learn that pretty soon you're going to run out of fingers. And you might have to go to the other hand and then start using your toes. And then, you know, life is full of disappointment. Life is full of grief. We have families amongst us who are having marriage problems. We have families among us who have lost people. We have health concerns. We can be disappointed in our children. We can be disappointed in our spouse. We can be disappointed in this whole world. I think one of the biggest ones is when we're disappointed in our own selves and cannot forgive our own selves. That's challenging. It's only through death 
that new life comes. It's only through small things that great things bloom out. It's only through grief here that hope will arise. These disappointments on my finger, I'm beginning to see as opportunities for God to work in my life. And and honestly, he hasn't worked through all of them yet. And some of them I'm waiting. Some of them I'm still in exile, okay? I'm still spending some time in Babylon on some of these fingers. But I have hope that God will redeem each of these, but more importantly, me and this world through the work of his son. So this is, our, this is what Bethlehem means to us. That it's not just simple and Christmas carols and white snow and beautiful trees and great decorations and presents and I hope you get everything you ask for and I hope Santa Claus is great to you this year. I really do. But this is the beginning of what God is doing in the world and wrapped up in all of it is a place of sacrifice and a place of death so that new life can come forward. And I know that personally, parts of me have to die so that new life can come. And only when those parts of me die can God start doing things and redeeming things through me and in me and for other people. That's what Bethlehem means to me. I hope uh, this week we have some chance to, to reflect on that. Now, there's been a little downer, so come back on Thursday night for some really exciting, great news, okay? But come back Thursday night or Friday morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you wrap up so much meaning in one place. Thank you that you invest so much power in one person who redeems us and gives us new life. Amen.